Welcome to The C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about the museum pie. I'm Jenna Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. So, ladies, do we have any news this week? Uh, I have some news that's not strictly conservation-related, but it's a story that made me laugh so much this oh, week. Oh, please go, go on. And it is kind of computer-related, so I figured it'd be good for this episode. Uh-huh. Uh, you may have seen it. It's about a uh, researcher, um, an artificial intelligence researcher called called Janelle Shane, um, who works on neural networks. So basically... Um, teaching computers to learn things um, naturally in the same way that people learn things so that they, uh, as they get more and more knowledge about a particular thing, then they're able to kind of build on that and so on. And um, she, in the past, has taught computers to do all kinds of things, um, including like making up new recipes based on what's in existing recipe books. But what she's turned her attention to this time is inventing new paint colours and even better names for those paint colours. Oh, um, God. So basically, she says, for this experiment, I gave the neural network a list of about 7,700 Sherwin-Williams paint colours, along with their RGB values. Could the neural network learn to invent new paint colours and give them attractive names? Um, Basically, from what it's learned about how these existing 8,000 paint colours are named. Um, And she had, I think it's fair to say, kind of mixed results. Um, (laughs) So the first ones were all basically kind of sludgy, gragey kind of colours. Um, and the computer was trying to call them things like K-Blé and Sable and so on, which she thinks is because it was kind of attempting a combination of the colours blue, brown and grey. Ah. Um, so she kind of cranked up the creativity setting on it and it started coming up Oh, please up tell with me colours. that's a giant dial. But... <laughs> uh, yeah, I would love it to be. She started coming up with colours like Bilfgone, Glozd and so on and Dondarf. What kind of colours um, are they? <laughs> kind of, <laughs> so Dondarf is a kind of fetching lilac-y colour and <laughs> Bilfgone, Glozd is a pale, ac- acidy, yellowy lime colour. Um, but then she carried on and it started coming up with things that it started learning what was a grey, what was a blue and so on, but the names are absolutely have me in hysterics i'm afraid so they it calls things um it's calling colors like snow bonk and cat babel <laughs> oh i would pick my wall with that and uh burble simp stanky bean <laughs> stoner blue oh, turdly God. dope <laughs> i don't know where it's getting this stuff from um <laughs> dorkwood oh stummy beige and so on uh, so anyway go and look at her blog and have a look at the colors and so on it just kind of oh, looks- reminded me of the struggle we have as conservators sometimes <laughs> to put kind of names to colors and kind of match oh, colors true. and come up with i think stuff we like should so- get it to start naming exhibitions <laughs> oh that would be amazing <laughs> oh oh i bet there's someone out there who's gonna make a gen- one of those generator things on the internet for that that would be amazing could someone please do that thanks just that exhibition name generator. Someone out there code that right now. It's it's an order. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> oh, it would be great if you could choose if it's an arty one or an uh, archaeology one. Or and then it'll it'll yeah, choose from different word here. clouds. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's more likely to be something about bones if it's archaeology based. Anyway, I'm, I'm way off. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, now. if you're a conservator and you're looking for the perfect name for that really difficult to name shade <laughs> of purpley grey blue, go out there and this uh, neural network will have a name for it. The name might be Stoner Blue or Dorkwood or Runching Blue or Bank Butt, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it sounds amazing. Oh, I love it. Awesome. Anyway, great piece of news. I love that. That's highly entertaining. We're definitely going to link to that. And then just a kind of general reminder, we are on Patreon. Please check us out. There's a link in the description. We do amazing stuff on Patreon. So come on, join us. All right. Today we are talking about what I'll call museum pie, by which I mean raspberry pies and museums. Um, yeah, but not the food. No, like people not, keep telling me this. It's not the food. No, it's not the food. <laughs> uh, we're not encouraging pie eating in museums unless it's in the designated area, like a cafe. <laughs> no, seriously, the, the amount of times I need to tell people not to eat crisps in the galleries is amazing. <laughs> uh, Things I probably won't keep in the episode. <laughs> yeah. Yes, people get very upset when they're not allowed to eat crisps in the galleries. I just don't understand. Why do you have to eat? I just don't, like, eat outside. Can you not go, like, 40 minutes without food? This just reminds me of an excellent conversation. It was either on Museum Hour or it was on one of the Facebook groups on, uh, yeah, obviously Facebook. Uh, but um, it was something about what's the oddest thing that you've had to stop someone eat in an exhibition <laughs> space. And I think the winner of that competition was someone eating actual whole ribs. What? <laughs> actual whole ribs <laughs> in... Uh, in a gallery full of, you know, animal skeletons. I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing. It's like thematic. It's wrong. It's messy. How did you even get in there? Uh, <laughs> what was the container? I have no idea. I didn't ask follow-up questions. Um, Is that yeah. what's called, like, immersive learning or something? <laughs> so the Raspberry Pi, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a low-cost credit card-sized computer. It's uh made in the uk and it's used for a variety of uh kind of diy projects and uh, it exists in many versions ranging from the tiny raspberry zero which weighs nine grams and uh, uh all the way up to a more powerful one which is a whopping 45 grams um i just want to emphasize that these are tiny tiny computers which are quite cool so I think in this episode, my voice will be the voice of every one of our listeners that has no idea <laughs> what they do or what they could possibly be used for. Yeah, and, and that's fine. That's fine. I'm cool. I'm totally on board with that. I am a I am a geek, and I live with a geek. So between us, we're quite keen on Raspberry Pis. Uh, we use a Raspberry Pi that powers our media center. So that's basically set up so that we can access loads of tv shows and all sorts of stuff right and music and all sorts of things that we can just kind of go in and select and be like play that for me play that for me tv do it uh because we don't watch actual tv so there you go so we have a magical media center instead which is powered by raspberry pi i have watched my partner set one up for music the same thing but for music yeah and i tried to watch the process and tried to like understand the sort of capabilities of the thing and everything but I just I just don't, I think I'm so far beyond knowing where to begin with it and I don't think that I'm terrible with computers but I think that there there are people who 
we'll listen later to uh, a lovely interview um, from someone who knows about computers but thinks they don't and uh, I just I don't think they can imagine <laughs> we also have um we also have various raspberry pies around the house um including um acting as a music server and as a general media center as well and also one that does kind of ad hoc projects and stuff but um i think the thing chloe about raspberry pi is that the whole idea of them was to allow this kind of grassroots engagement with computing um, right. because they were kind of developed as a response to the fact that people um, in universities were seeing people uh, were seeing 18 year olds start computer science courses who hadn't grown up with that kind of tinkering and so on that you used to get in the 80s and so on when there were quite a lot of low-cost computers that you could kind of mess around with and program to do stuff and people don't people weren't doing that so much and so the the whole rationale behind it, one of the rationales in a way, um, as I understand it, was that they wanted to give people an opportunity to kind of muck around and try things out and so on, but um, in a kind of very safe and accessible and easy and most of all cheap way. And the great thing about it is that um, there's this huge kind of community that's grown up so that if you do get stuck, there's loads of people who can help you. Um, there's loads of... Um, there's loads of forums where people answer your questions and take you through stuff step by step. Um, there's a magazine, a really fantastic magazine called The Magpie. And there are loads of Raspberry Pi for Dummies books and uh, with some like really basic projects to get you started. Okay. And, and more importantly, I think there's loads and loads and loads of educational resources because like Christina said, this was actually partly aimed at teaching young people these skills, right? So, a lot of these things are actually aimed at kids. And I mean, really kids, right? Not, we're, we're talking like... Should be perfect for me then. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, that's, that's not what I meant. I just mean it's what that. I mean. No, no, no. Um, it's just that a lot of it is, it's meant to be educational. It's meant to be quite fun. And I mean, if you find it daunting to start with like the full-on thing or buying a kit, then, you know, you can totally go and look up, frankly, school resources for this, where it's like, this is what it is, this is what you can do, here's something really simple, it makes some lights flash, uh, it's amazing. And they make they make such cute things. I seriously wish I had offspring just <laughs> so that I could sit and tinker with this stuff with them, because there's some really, really cute stuff. I used to go to a lot of maker events when I lived in Cambridge, because uh, across the country there are these things called raspberry jams. <laughs> um where where these are maker events where people give talks or little workshops and people sell components and they kind of swap ideas and show off projects that they've done people make so much with these little kits and kids make them and teenagers make them and old men make them basically anyone can get on board and i feel like if you just start light i feel like there's every possibility that everyone can pick up something from this um, okay it's kind of at that, all levels that does make me feel a lot better actually because i think the impression i always got so my partner is good with computers and mm. he works with them and everything so i sort of it, it's all whatever he does it's it seems high level to me mm. so i was assuming that it was this sort of big scary mountain of which i didn't even know where to begin <laughs> climbing rather than yeah, you know, where the, I would where the for example is. maybe not ask him because he will <laughs> assume a level of knowledge that you might not have for example the, uh, even yeah. though he knows you really well obviously he knows I, you well and he loves you but 
He might, you know, he might fly into it from a, I know these things, clearly you know them kind of perspective, which is obviously something mm. that in a more gen general way, conservatives suffer from all the time when we kind of launch into an explanation and people go, I don't really understand Cellulose, what you mean right? by humidity. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh -huh. uh, I need to go back to basics. Um, yeah. So yeah, but it's it's something you could totally look into if you wanted to. So no no need yeah, to look frightened. I, I yeah, think. I think Raspberry Pi for kids would be a good thing. Yeah, and I, I think love that's that that's very, out there. Uh, yeah, I do as well. That's really, really good. Yeah. Um, I, but not just for kids. I mean, no, as obviously. Jenny said, people are doing all kinds of things with them. And I think one of the reasons they're quite attractive to museums is because um, you can do quite a lot of stuff without necessarily having a lot of specialist knowledge. And they're really cheap. Um, and museums don't tend to have a lot of money. They are um, really cheap. And so uh, to, to they do... Kind of, uh, to give you kind of yeah. a guideline, the Raspberry... Uh, pi zero, which is the smallest one that you can get. That's about a fiver. Oh wow, that's a computer for a fiver. Granted, you will need to buy some extra things to make it do what you want. But as a starting cost, a fiver. And then the the bigger models are Christina. Do you remember how much they are? Are they about twenty? Uh, I want to say like twenty or thirty quid off the top of my head, and then you'll need to buy um, a few extra things, various mm. cables and so on. Um, you'll probably need to get hold of a keyboard and a mouse um you don't need a screen necessarily because we just use the tv often um so if you've got an hdmi cable you can just use your tv as a monitor for it because it is literally just the computer so yeah. in order to interact with it you're going to need some kind of way of interacting you can buy touch screens um that are designed to work for them mm -hmm. as well and a, lo a lot of museums do experiment with that now which i think is really great so I was involved with a project at a previous museum um, where we had a lot of touchscreens in the galleries and the touchscreen displays, each um, screen was running a display as a different display and they were all being run not over the network because we had issues with um, actual physical networking. So each touchscreen had its own CPU, its own computer PC tower. And... Um, these were hidden in voids above the showcases um, in the sort of dead space that you get above a showcase. Um, and of course, having a computer running for 12 hours a day, they used to get in a confined space. They used to get really, really hot. Um, the fans were going all the time. I was kind of worried it was a fire risk, apart from anything else. Yeah, um, I was going to say, I'd really worry about the heat. And it was <laughs> having a, a kind of, you know, appreciable effect on the temperature in the showcase as well, um, although we did install venting as well. Um, and so we thought, well, why not use a Raspberry Pi? They run very cold, um, so they don't produce a lot of heat output, and they'd be really small and cheap and so on. And for something very kind of contained, like just a touchscreen display, they've easily got enough processing power to do that. So I spent quite a long time trying to set this up. Unfortunately, this doesn't have a happy ending because the touchscreens we had, one of the issues with the Raspberry Pi is that the actual uh, processor architecture is not the same as it is for most PCs. Um, and so the sort of standard drivers that we had for the touchscreens, the actual, to, to run the hardware, um, weren't compatible with that. And I kind of worked with the touchscreen company and so on, but we never really managed to, um, get over those issues, which is a huge shame. But, um, other people have managed this by kind of hacking other touchscreens and so on. Um, 
And I think as the as Raspberry Pis start to get a bit more widely used, then there will be um, mm. other things available. And actually, there I um I asked around a little bit on Reddit, both in r slash museum pros, which is where the museum professionals go, and in slash Raspberry Pi. Um, I'm trying to remember if it's actually called Raspberry Pi or if it's called something else, but I'm terrible. But anyway, in the Raspberry Pi subreddit uh, for um basically ideas and if anyone had seen anything cool being done by museums uh that utilized raspberry pies and someone linked me to something called pie presents which is oh uh, yeah i looked at that <laughs> yeah a, a multimedia yeah. toolkit for creating displays and that sort of thing in museums so not necessarily touchscreen ones although it could um i think link into that as well um so that's that's something that's actually developed very much for galleries and museums where you can go and download some of their um guidance and uh, it'll help you build uh, what you need to maybe do a kind of a very basic display you know something that changes on a screen that sort of thing um and that's that's a really good idea that's a, that's a great resource um, yeah, I think from memory, Pi Presents is. Um, I mean, if you if you were literally just got a presentation screen, mm, um, yeah. so you're not, it's not interactive. It is literally just a display screen. Then that's absolutely brilliant. And I think what I didn't say earlier, but um, Chloe might be interested in this actually, um, is that the whole basically the Pies have a um, an SD card, and everything is contained on the SD card, the operating system, all the data, anything else that you put on it, and so on. Oh, wow. And so the beauty of this is that you can set one up really, really quickly, um, literally by just copying the SD card and putting it in another Raspberry Pi. Yeah, um, so, so you, you might know. need to program something once and you can then use that on several, yeah. just copy. Oh, but it also it opens up the possibility for people like sending out, uh, and people do send out, you know, you can buy SD cards that have everything ready on them. So it's sort of infinitely repeatable in a way if you were to do, yeah. like with the display, uh, displays in number of places in the museum or in one gallery itself yeah mm -hmm. so it's oh wow so again it's obviously that saves time for everyone right mm -hmm. so if you need to do it loads of times it's quite easy to do um and also it means that you don't have any worrying mechanical parts uh like a hard drive uh that's then an yeah. additional failure risk because it's a solid state uh type of thing that you're storing everything on when it's an sd card so this sounds both well, there's obviously, you mentioned, Christina, the um, the fire risk of using your more conventional computers. So it sounds both health and safety, an improvement in health and safety, and also more eco-friendly. Would you, would they then be more energy efficient? Yes. Uh, yeah, undoubtedly. Take, yeah, They don't take very much to run at all in terms of power, which is another great selling point in that. That lower your energy bills considerably if you're running <laughs> Raspberry Pi's rather than 16 actual computer towers. Um, I mean, I'm not sure you're supposed to, but you can run them off a mobile phone charger, basically. Um, obviously, the more things you've got connected to it, then the higher the energy draw will be. Um, and you might need um, an additional source of power as well. But basically, yeah, the draw is very, very low. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. I, I, I kind of want to see uh, people go beyond touchscreens and like, try try to do even more things in museums i'm sure people already do and they're just not talking about it one of the coolest things i found um was at the museum of london um who had an exhibition last year called london in video games which was literally just an exhibition about representations of london in video games over the last 
35 years. Oh, God, I cool. bet there are loads. <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> I'm kind of sad I missed that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. One of the earliest examples they had was a text-based adventure game. Remember those? Oh, yeah. <laughs> prices for anyone who can work out how old christina i and chloe are in sequence <laughs> <laughs> well that's basically what i grew up with was these things on like five and a quarter inch floppy disks um that used to come free with pc magazines and so on a long time ago um and oh, yeah. they were literally chloe literally text-based games um and so it was all done at the command line, essentially. And it would say, oh you God. have entered a room. There is a key on the floor. And so you would type in, pick up key. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then it would say, amazing. you have picked yeah, up so this the is key. pre-point and click. It's, you know, before you could actually point at anything and click it. It, it was very much a, a more go through the door or turn around, yeah. leave forest, that sort of thing, right? Where At the Museum of London exhibition, one of the earliest... Um, examples they found was a game from 1982 which was a text-based adventure game called streets of london which was made for the zx spectrum and they wanted to show this game in the exhibition but they found that the computers that they had weren't really robust enough to stand being run for an exhibition day after day and so on Um, and there were really long load times from the cassettes which were used for that and the sort of um there were issues as well with the hardware the keyboards and the monitors and so on so um somebody has made a um old games emulator for the raspberry pi called retro pi so the museum of london used this um as an emulator to show um, what it would have been like playing this game on a real ZX Spectrum. Um, and they actually, um, I think, provided uh, proper controllers, joysticks and so on. Amazing. So you could actually play these games and so on. But what was running it wasn't a real 30-year-old ZX Spectrum. It was a Raspberry Pi emulating that. Mm. But it's it's a really good example of something where it kind of allows you to use this stuff in an exhibition, but without... Um, sort of uh, unacceptable wear and tear to your actual old computers and so on and i think for things like computer museums it's actually a really brilliant uh, substitute for that yeah definitely this is amazing so this is this is actually that seems to me to be sort of heading towards restoration like or replication yeah Yeah. well it it is making a game usable again in a way even when you don't have the actual original Hardware. I really want to hear from some time-based media conservators now about this <laughs> and how they could use how they could use Raspberry Pis in this. I bet they already do. Yeah, they possibly do. And if you are one and you want to tell tell us something, please write in. Please, please, we love hearing from people. We can probably talk to you in our time-based media episode, which we'll be having in the future at some point. Yes, subtle hint. Um, <laughs> I should at this point put a shout out to my friend Helen, who actually works for Raspberry Pi um, in Cambridge and has been incredibly useful. Hi, Helen, um, at um, giving me some um, pointers to uh, Raspberry Pis that have been used in museums. Macclesfield Silk Museum have actually used Raspberry Pis um, for a demonstration model for museum visitors to show people how um, punch cards work. So a long time ago, um, the looms that used to make uh, patterned silk textiles um, used punch cards, um, which are arguably some of the earliest computer programs. In fact, they're literally cards with holes punched into them, which tell the loom 
what kind of weaving pattern to do according to where the holes are in the Jacquard cards. Jacquard looms, that's right, isn't it? Jacquard looms, yes, exactly. So um, Macclesfield... In the room. <laughs> <laughs> so Macclesfield Silk Museum um, found that um, they wanted to sort of allow visitors to understand the kind of relationship between these cards and the holes in them and what pattern would actually be woven from that particular card. So they've made a really nice kind of terminal in the gallery, where uh, which is run by a Raspberry Pi, where you can um, take a card um, and place it onto um, some sort of uh, prongs in front of the terminal. And then it will pop up on the screen with the pattern that would have been woven from that particular card. Um, and I think it's a really kind of simple but effective way of kind of showing how... Um, how objects would have worked in use. Oh, that's amazing. I love that example. That's great. That's really cool. Ingenious. Thanks, Helen. <laughs> Again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I remember seeing something quite clever at one of these maker days at a Raspberry Jam. Um, someone was playing around with Bluetooth beacons. So it's basically wireless little discs that you uh, put next to things and they would uh, send a command. They would be powered essentially, or linked to a Raspberry Pi. And then you could do some clever things with your smartphone, picking up Bluetooth signals. So when you went close to some something, a uh, display would light up or mm-hmm. or something similar if you had something installed or running on your phone. And um, I thought that was definitely a winner for the museum sector, right? Um, it wasn't used in a museum context at all, but I immediately thought, how is that not used immediately for audio audio guides? Because these little discs were really cheap. Um, mm. And I thought, that's brilliant for audio guides, maybe tours around archaeological sites, because what if you just put one of these little discs on one interpretive panel? Because, you know, they're easy enough to replace if they ever, ever fall off or get damaged or something. And then... If your visitors are wandering around the archaeological site on their own, which they often are, there's not tours all the time when you're at like a Roman fort or something, then each time they stop by, say, a, a building or something, it could, you know, light up and, I don't know, start an audio thing if you have it activated on your phone. And it could start telling you, like, this is a Roman granary and it used to hold seven tons of, I don't know, wheat. <laughs> I don't know. But, like, it, it, I just thought there was so much potential there. Um, so if anyone out there is experimenting with these cheap Bluetooth beacons for, you know, audio tours or something else, please tell me. I'm dying to hear from yeah, you. Audio tours or narrative exhibitions. Yeah, and... I mean, I just thought, oh, there's so much you could do with that. But I get very excited about geeky projects. I really do. So something I've started reading about that people are doing, because loads of people are now hipsters who brew their own beer. No, <laughs> people have always brewed their own beer. Come on. Um, <laughs> long before people became hipsters. Um, they're true hipsters. They did it before it was cool. I used to brew beer and I am in no sense a hipster. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, so when uh, when someone has developed a a brewer's helper, where it's something where it checks the temperature and like, Uh, all these sorts of things so that you get your brew right and i thought oh my god environmental monitoring See, i have this written down yeah it's the only thing that having no idea really how it can be utilized i thought oh my god environmental monitoring this is so this is so possible right but i think the problem is someone someone 
preferably a student, so any students listening, listen up. Environmental monitoring could totally be possible with Raspberry Pis if we figured out which of the available temperature and humidity monitors, because both exist, because people make weather stations with these things, mm-hmm. which ones are exact enough for what we want and how you would lo- how you would uh, conveniently log the data. Um, basically, someone needs to run some experiments out there and then... I don't know, be rich by selling the kits. Because if you <laughs> sold that. all the bits together, then you would get museum people totally buying them, I think. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. I'm totally pimping this idea that I've had for years. <laughs> because I don't word. <laughs> cough, I don't have time to do this. <laughs> so but, there was some... Um, oh, yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, I just... I just dying for someone to do this so uh, anyone with loads of time on their hands or looking for a phd topic or a dissertation topic you should do this <laughs> the, the, one of the things about it um about a raspberry pi is that there are there's also you can attach hardware um as jenny says and there's a huge variety of sensors available um and there are things called hats hardware attached on top apparently mm-hmm. um but they're kind of boards that you can add on top of your raspberry pi and you can add all kinds of things um you can uh, there are um pollution sensors as well which i think could potentially have a role in gallery monitoring oh yeah um and uh, as jenny said there's also uh what sensors for rh and temperature which people use quite commonly to make home weather stations um and there's light sensors as well but there are also various controllers as well so you can do things that happen um, if the light reaches a certain level or if the temperature gets over a certain level as well. So they can be used not just for sensing, but also possibly for environmental control. Oh, that's lovely. That I know, would right? be um, amazing. Now, I have to say, I have not come across any examples of this actually happening. No. And I don't know how robust the systems would be. And, um, and that's most importantly, I don't know how... Try it out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how well calibrated they would be or anything like that. But mm. it, it would be really cool to try it out. Yeah, agreed. Uh, oh, God, I hope there's one for ultraviolet light. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Oh. <laughs> like, things I would do if I had all the money and time. <laughs> uh, no, generally, I think this would be an absolutely brilliant thing for people to try out, especially in the student environment. But, um, yeah, that's all I can do. I can only pimp the idea. Uh, next, we've got an interview with uh, a lovely chap called Mark. Let's listen to it now. He's used a Raspberry Pi. I'm here with uh, Mark Kearney. Mark, would you like to present yourself? What do you do? Uh, I am a doctoral researcher in heritage science and based at UCL's Institute for Sustainable Heritage. So we're talking to you today because uh, you're one of the few uh, conservators I know who's been using a Raspberry Pi. Could you tell me a little, little bit about your Pi project? What did you do and why? Sure. So the, the Raspberry Pi project... Um, Kind of well, there's a bit of a backstory to the Raspberry Pi project in the sense that um, I went for my interview at the VNA um, to get the Icon Heritage Lottery funded internship, and I got a little tour of, of the lab afterwards. And there was these two plastic handbags um, that were kind of slowly disintegrating in front of everyone's eyes, um, and they were like, you know, you'll be working on these when you, you know, if you get the job. Mm-hmm. Um, so fast forward like four months, five months later, and I'm in the job. And we're still looking at these handbags, but they've they've gone even worse. Um, you know, in, in the four or five months that, you know, since the interview to, to that point, they had completely disintegrated. And we were thinking to ourselves, God, it'd be great to kind of 
map this somehow or record it somehow other than us just going, oh, that's a new bit broken off. Um, And I had been reading at the time about the camera unit that had just been released for the Pi. And I had used Pis previously and I thought, oh, yeah, that that would be great. We could use a little Raspberry Pi because, you know, the the lab space wasn't terribly big and we didn't want to, you know, set up an entire camera studio just for two plastic handbags. Yeah, yeah, it takes Uh, up a lot of space. It does, yeah. Um, And we also didn't really want to kind of cart it over to photography um, and take up space in their lab or anything like that. So we said, yeah, let's let's use a Raspberry Pi. Let's let's try and get that done. Um, So that's the kind of backstory of it. It was was basically came out of the fact that, you know, the people in the lab noticed that that, that two of our research objects were, were just literally falling apart in front of our eyes. And we thought, well, can we try and view it or somehow. So you used a Raspberry Pi because of space restrictions? Yeah, but also the Raspberry Pi would, would let us do something long term. So so we started talking about it and we kind of thought, well, we can take photos. I mean, photos would have been very easy to do. You know, we could have just gone along with our, with our cameras. Um, but we didn't want to kind of spend much effort on it, really. Mm. We wanted to, to kind of set it up and let it go and then we also wanted to do it, um, you know, for the remainder of the internship um, and then try and do a time lapse photography video of it to see could we, you know, kind of make something for kind of PR purposes um, and maybe also a bit of research um, that showed, you know, what can happen a plastic object as it decays over over a very short period of time. You know, at that point in time, I had about a year left in the in the internship. So. A year in museum time is quite short, yeah. But a year in 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 plastic time, um, can be the difference between being able to show something on display and it being confined to a box uh, in in the storage area, and never really being allowed out again. So that's that's where it kind of came out of. Really, it, it was it was trying to use a Raspberry Pi because it was it was the most convenient thing that we could think of to use. Mm. Uh, and and the and the flexibility of being able to code with it meant that we could, well, it meant that we could really do whatever we wanted with it. Um, so we decided to take a photo an hour for about nine months, ten months. Oh wow! So did you have an interest in ra- the Raspberry Pi before this? Yeah, I had used one before. Um, I had kind of gotten one quite early when they came out, so, and. And basically wanted to create the the the, t- the telly that we had at home um, into a smart telly, so that I could instead of watching videos on my laptop, I could watch them on my telly. Mm. Um, so the the program Cody had come out for the Raspberry Pi. Oh yeah, that's totally what we're doing at home as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, brilliant little program. Oh yeah. Um, and also, I just had a, I had a, I had a little bit of coding experience. I mean, I really had, had very little, um, but I kind of thought, oh, that that'll be a nice Christmas project to do um, over over a little while. Mm. Um, so I just, I just kind of drove, you know, dived right into it and, and started coding on the Pi to get the Kodi working, um, and it was great. And then I moved to London, and I didn't have a telly anymore, so I kind of had a spare Pi. Mm. Um, so that was also the other thing that happened with the with getting the pie into into the V&A was that I had one sitting in my bedroom and it wasn't doing anything. Um, so I said it, w- it would be good from that point of view. Um, 
but yeah, so I had a little bit of experience with them, but but really very minor, you know, I mean, from coding point of view, very, very minor coding experience. Oh, that's good. So um, that, that, gi- that gives me hope that, you know, people can pick up these skills without it being an insurmountable task. Because oh, a, a lot of the time people are quite, you know, a little bit put off because they're like, I'm not a programmer, though. You know, I'm, I'm not yeah. doing that. And neither was I at the time, but I think, you know, there are, you know, GitHub and Stacks Exchange are fantastic places to find the basis of your code. And I found my code um, just by Googling Raspberry Pi time lapses, I think, and eventually finding somebody who had something reasonably similar to what I wanted to do, but had kind of the main lines and the main commands that I needed. Um, so I was able to kind of take them, learn how they use, learn how they were working. And then code them in a way that I, that I wanted it to work for our project. Um, so really, the only thing that you need to know is is how to use Google search. <laughs> um, that's about the most coding that you kind of need to need to learn how to use. That's good. Uh, that's good. I like that. <laughs> so aside from that, was it difficult to set up? I mean, and so the coding side is is kind of a beast of its own. But then yeah. hardware wise, was it difficult to set up? Yes and no. So there are two parts to the Raspberry Pi project. So there's the Raspberry Pi and the camera, and then the camera setup, shall we say. Mm-hmm. So setting up the camera was really straightforward. There was really good guidelines on, on the Raspberry Pi website for it, and we got that working really quickly after after getting it. What was a little bit more difficult was getting lighting correct, because we had fluorescent tube lights in the in the lab, which are great for lighting, oh, you know, yeah. a big a big open space. Mm-hmm. But when you're trying to do a shiny surface, um, you know, the reflections were quite annoying, um, and we were actually losing a lot of detail about the object through these reflections. So we basically kind of created a plastisote tent. Um, I mean, one of the better parts of working in a conservation studio is there are lots of offcuts of everything. Yes. <laughs> um, so plastisote was easy to come by. Um, the girls in, in textile conservation, I think, gave me that. Um, and then there was some uh, mounting card, which we used as a kind of a reflector to bounce kind of bright light um, back up in, into the object. Um, got that off paper cons. So everyone kind of helped out a little bit. So once we had the that the pie setup done and, and that the lighting the way that we wanted setting up the actual raspberry pi was was really really quite easy um the only thing that we changed which took us a little bit of time to figure out how to do was the the field of view on the camera is quite wide open um mm. so it, it, it's very good if you want to do a, a landscape um photograph you know time lapse on your on your pie but if you're trying to get something that's kind of 12 inches uh, 30 centimeters across it's actually not particularly well suited to that so what we did um was get reading glasses we bought bought a <laughs> cheap pair of reading glasses for like 2.99 and and put one of the lenses so i think it was a by lens that we put in front of the camera lens mm-hmm. and that just magnified everything and that worked a treat wow yeah i mean i mean the the quality of the raspberry pi lens probably isn't professional grade quality um but it's 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 good enough and, it, and you can see quite a lot of detail on the high-res images and adding a, a three by magnification lens to it didn't really 
um, change the characteristics of the photos very much. There was a little bit of, of barrel distortation on the edges, but mm. we weren't interested in the edges. But again, that was probably taking the whole thing a little bit too technically. So really, you, it didn't really matter to us at all. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, I, lo- I love that you properly MacGyvered it. That's great. Yeah, and and you know what? It became this kind of thing that, that people would come into the lab and, and they'd see this kind of white plastazole box with this kind of weird camera thingy sticking up out of it and they'd immediately go, what are you doing over there? <laughs> um, and it was a great conversation starter. So when yeah. we were giving giving tours of the lab, they all got to see the Raspberry Pi project and, and, and it was a nice intro into this is what conservation does, this is what conservation science does, and this is what we're doing with regards to our modern materials. Oh, that's really lovely. Uh, was it uh, expensive? No. I mean, I suppose you already had the pie, so that's, that's a that small was the, cost already. That was the, the main expense was the pie. Yeah. The camera itself was £25. Okay. Um, and then we had we also got a little um, Wi-Fi dongle for it again for, I think it was about 7 or £8. Pounds. I know, so one of the ways the Raspberry Pi project came about as well was that um, Icon had given me some funding um, for books and supplies um, along with the internship. And we had used a little bit of it on a sample kit. And then we had about, we had less than £40 pounds left and we didn't really know what to do with it. Um, and £40 pounds wasn't enough to buy a book or anything like that. So we thought, actually, we can use that money. So I know it was under about under about £40 pounds to get to get those two, oh, two things. Oh, that's good to know. Like, that seems like a, not, that's not an insurmountable amount of money. Like, it's it's something you can probably manage to muster, you know, even if you're a smaller institution. Absolutely. And that was, that was a key thing to us um, in actually our funding application for using the remainder of the ICON budget. Um, on on the camera and and the the dongle was that, you know, this is something that if we set it up, we might be able to kind of give out to other people um, yeah. because it it really, I mean, if you you know you can get Raspberry Pi kits for about forty five maybe fifty pounds that has the the charger and the um, the the SD card. Um, so if you tack on another. 25 pounds for the for the camera you're looking at about 75 80 pounds which really isn't terribly too much yeah um and you can do a lot of things with it then yeah especially i mean whilst it might be bought for one project it can easily spawn more so it's it's not Um, like it's a so it's not a one-off thing you can use it again and again and again for all sorts of things exactly yeah yeah and you can and the the beauty of it is is that it's so small and so portable that you can really move it wherever you want so once it's done one project and you want to do another thing with it you can very easily pack it all up plug it in somewhere else and it's it's ready to go yeah exactly so uh what did you learn from this project actually i probably learned a couple of things i suppose the first thing was is that i learned how to code a little bit more yeah uh so i there was definitely some troubleshooting one of the things that we had an issue with was um, the way that the Wi-Fi network is set up in the VNA. So we used the public Wi-Fi, and we didn't use the staff Wi-Fi. But the way that the staff or the public Wi-Fi works was that it, you would get a different IP every about twenty hours or something like that. Oh, yeah. So when we were trying to tunnel into the Pi because we were using an iPad to to do everything, we didn't have a screen or, or uh, a mouse or keypad. We used an iPad. Um, we had to ask. Um, the IT department to give it a static IP, um, which 
they did very kindly, but it did take a little bit of time to figure out, oh yeah, we need a static IP, that's why this isn't working. And I suppose troubleshooting as well because of those issues with um, with the lighting and with the IP address. And, and the confidence that I gained from doing the Raspberry Pi project allowed me to A, recognize that coding could help me in this area, and B, kind of give me the confidence to say, I know, I might know exactly how to do it, but I know where I can find it. And I know that the coding isn't scary enough that it's going to put me off. I know I can do it. It just will take a little bit of time. Yeah. Oh, that's really great. Are you planning on using a Raspberry Pi for any future projects? I am. Yeah. So uh, back to the PhD, I will hopefully be trying to do some sensing um, on some on some plastic objects in the future. Um, and I'm hoping that I might be able to integrate the sensors into a Raspberry Pi um, so that we we cut down on the size because currently the sensors the sensors themselves are pretty small, but the the stuff that they connect to is quite large. Um, and I know that somebody has designed a particular piece of electronics that works with the Raspberry Pi that does the same thing. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, definitely in the future, I'd like to do something with the Raspberry Pi. Oh, lovely. Uh, I, look for, I look forward to uh, reading and hearing <laughs> all about that. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. You're very it. welcome. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's no been a pleasure. I think, as I said earlier, um, Mark is a very clever man and he forgets. Uh, I think he's in too deep, possibly, with, <laughs> with his tech knowledge. I think he forgets how possible or how inept how little knowledge people can have um so when he describes himself as having very little experience oh i've done a bit of coding like uh <laughs> i th i think it for me at least i think i would need a great degree more experience to to even think of a project involving a raspberry pi than I have already. So I think it's it's an excellent opportunity. It was an excellent opportunity for training and for, you know, training days, maybe a workshop. Oh, yeah. If I'd I'd love to, to see... do a workshop, that would be amazing. I'd love to see Because then you can start it. thinking in terms of Raspberry Pis mm. um, and in terms of the types of equipment that you could utilise. Mm. Um, so, Chloe, you mentioned training. Um, I will say um, my... Um, I, I live in the east of England, um, where there's a consortium called Share Museums East, um, and I think there must be Share Consortia elsewhere as well. Um, but they organise training for museums across the re region in a variety of things, not just conservation and collection care, but all kinds of museum practice. And um, they did actually, a couple of years ago, organise a workshop in raspberry pies for museums oh, which wow. unfortunately i was not able to go to um but i think people are starting to pick up on this as a thing um and so do look out for opportunities like this and do if you if you've got training consortia in your area then let them know that this is something you'd be interested in and they can find a trainer and set up a course that's brilliant i'm writing that down and if you want to read more um, about Mark's project, um, I think we should say um, it's actually on the VNA yeah. website, uh, on the VNA conservation blog. So, yes. so we'll uh, pop a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And to other people do it. Um, set up time lapse cameras for other crumbling, <laughs> failing, deteriorating <laughs> yes. objects in your collections because it would be so cool to see these processes in action. Yeah. I it agree. doesn't have to. Oh, I mean, 
yes, the the uh, the process of deterioration is obviously something incredibly fascinating because it can probably teach us the kinds of things that happen um, and the signs as well. If we if we're not familiar with the deterioration of certain materials, the mm. signs to look out for. But it can be used for all sorts of things as well, like. Time I've seen time lapses of you know decant projects and de and install mm. projects um, and object travel as well. If the vibrations of of whatever situation is causing travel of an object on display or in a store, um, just watching someone clean something is quite pleasing. Yeah, exactly. like, yeah, we have an example of actually you cleaning something. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah making something look nicer. Um, that wasn't a pie that that was just no. my phone. Yeah, no, that's true. That's sort of level up. I think the great thing about Mark's project, though, is that it, it was over several months. So it kind of shows oh, yeah. stuff that really is not kind of perceptible otherwise. I mean, obviously, you know, don't just not treat your objects just so you can photograph them. No, 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 obviously, no, quite. But <laughs> if you've got something um, and you even want to see if it even is changing, um, I think it, it's a really fantastic project. Mm. And I'm thinking things like, uh, I'd love to see audio tests really sped up where it's like, oh, look at that. Oh, it's corroding massively now. I, I don't know. I'd, I'd be quite fascinated by that sort of thing. But, <laughs> but then I am a huge nerd, so I would be fascinated. Anyway, yeah, there's loads of potential. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your ideas. We'd love to hear what you're actually doing, things you've seen done. Tell us everything. We'd love to hear from you. And in addition to our interview with Mark, we also recently talked to two other people with a lot of experience of using Raspberry Pis. Alex Bate from the Raspberry Pi Foundation and George Oates from the Museum in a Box Project. Um, my name's Alex. I am the social media editor for Raspberry Pi Foundation. So I am uh, in charge of the social media accounts such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I also write the blog um, and write for Magpie magazine, as well as it would seem appearing in podcasts. <laughs> um, hi, I'm George Oates. I'm the founder and CEO of Museum in a Box. I'm a designer by trade, uh, worked in software for 20 years. Um, and enjoying working on Museum in a Box, trying to help museums get their collections out into the world. So, George, do you want to tell us a bit about Museum in a Box? Sure. So, Museum in a Box is sort of an, a new play on the old idea of a museum handling collection where, you know, for quite a few years, museums have been sending boxes of original objects out into classrooms and you know the classrooms would rent a box for a couple of weeks and you know the kids would be able to touch the objects and, and use them to think with. Um, we're trying to bring that idea into the 21st century by using a couple of bits of tech mostly 3D printing so you can make more copies of museum objects to distribute them more widely and also we're using this idea of the internet of things so what happens if you connect these museum objects to the internet um, what kinds of information can you tell about those things and we've made uh, a little box with a what we call a brain in it and the brain is actually a Raspberry Pi computer with a couple of other bits and bobs, including um, speaker and amp and um, an NFC reader. And each of the objects in the box has a little sticker on it, an NFC sticker. So when you put the object on the box, it talks to you and can tell you a story about itself or play you a piece of music or anything really. And it's really fun and you get to touch stuff and you're not just looking at a screen, but you're actually sort of holding and feeling the objects and it's a really sort of nice multi-century way to experience a, a set of things. 
So what was the sort of original kind of inspiration for this? Was it um, trying to get objects out there and more accessible or had it come from museums or was it something you came up with as an idea? Yeah, well, I've been sort of, I've been orbiting the cultural heritage sector now for, I don't know, seven or eight years. And my background in design is sort of online, mostly web-based stuff. And the experience I've got is around big cultural content systems like the Flickr photo sharing website, um, the Internet Archive, etc. And my experience there in a sort of software or digital context was about trying to increase access to digital materials in that space. And the way to do that is to have many descriptions of things, not just one, because, uh, you know, if you only have one description of a thing, however official it is, it can be a bit difficult to retrieve if you don't know the language that the object was described with. But, you know, as I sort of moved from the digital world into the physical world, I got, I was lucky enough to do a short residency at Somerset House about two years ago now. And my friends, Tom Flynn and Harriet Maxwell joined me for two weeks there. And we, we basically made a kind of uh, made up collection, which was a set of 3D prints from the British Museum collection. And we, we selected them basically because they were available <laughs> and they had a, a nice geographic spread. So there was no sort of curatorial point of view at all. It was just basically we could have them. So what we would do is each day we would take a single object from the set of 10 and use it as our object of focus. And we'd make a little exhibit about that object each day. And it was a public space, so, you know, normal humans could come in and um, ask us what we were doing and, you know, we were talking to them about the idea and everybody really enjoyed um, the point of view we ended up taking about these objects, which was sort of about how they made their way to the British Museum. So, you know, for example, random fact, we learnt um, the Rosetta Stone and Hoa Hakan and Aya were acquired by the British Museum on the same day. Um, <laughs> can you imagine how exciting that would have been for the museum? Um, but anyway, one of, the, one of the days that we were there, I knew I did, wanted to do an experiment with this idea of Internet of Things, you know, what, what happens if you connect these objects directly to a computer? And so we made the very first kind of demonstration there where – uh, we stuck the stickers on the objects and uh, basically the interaction was if you boop them, which we like to say boop is the, as the action when you put an uh, object on the box. So when you, boop, um, when you boop the objects, it would just sort of read you the wall label, as it were, and we you know, just sort of used a really computery voice. And <laughs> but that very first demonstration um, isn't actually that different to the interaction that you have today in Museum in a Box and almost two years later. So it was, it was there that we sort of had the idea that, you know, what happens if you have these things connected to the internet and how many different descriptions can you have an, of an object and what happens if you have, you know, thousands of copies of an object out in the world and, you know, so all these interesting questions started opening up. But then we ended the residency and... But we'd had such a warm reaction from the public that uh, Tom and I in particular wanted to keep going with the idea. So we sort of picked it up again uh, towards the end of 2015 and we started a company together and uh, basically just started building prototypes and showing them to people and haven't really looked back. Why did you decide to use a Raspberry Pi as the brain for your box? Uh, it was mostly because we knew it was a powerful computer and it was you know mass-produced 
um, and so, you know, stable. And it allowed us to experiment quickly without needing to worry about too much about the capacity of the computer. And also the, the angle that it's already being used as an education tool in schools was definitely a factor. Like, you know, one of the angles of Museum in a Box uh, is around, you know, there's potential there for sort of cross-curricular learning and maybe it will get to the point where kids can actually engineer some of the interactions around the box. So by acknowledging that Raspberry Pi was already used really widely in schools as a sort of uh, part of the arsenal to teach kids computer science and stuff, we just thought that was a good good match. So robustness and, you know, pretty far reach. And I guess cheapness as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, there are quite a few cheaper uh, microcomputers and actually we've sort of experimented with a few, but we still like the Raspberry Pi because it's just, you know, it works and it's good. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Overall, it's, it's relatively cheap. Alex, your involvement with this as well? Uh, yeah, I randomly came across Museum in a Box when I was lost somewhere in the depths of the internet. And <laughs> it was a video which you'll be able to find online. It's the Planets Box, which is definitely, I believe, one of my favourites. Uh, watching this video that they'd loaded onto their website, we were somewhat blown away. So mm-hmm. I think in the space of about two minutes of discovering the video, I was already emailing the team, asking them if I could come and see them. And about two weeks later, I was in the office. And I will admit that the first time I put something on that box, I got a bit teary. I think I hit it well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's absolutely fascinating. You know, it's yes, you could say that museum in a box is aimed as a, a classroom aid, but I'm a bit too old for a classroom now. And it blew me away. And I've been in love with it ever since. I've been pushing it in the Magpie magazine. (laughs) And, uh, you know, if anybody kind of asks for examples of of things that you can do with their Raspberry Pi, Museum in a Box is definitely one of the ones that I push because it's such a, I don't want to say simple idea because it's so complex and wonderful, but the idea of having it read a tag Mm. is actually quite simple um, and something that I'd been talking to a colleague about only weeks previous, but we were going to use it just for a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, we were going to have action figures play their theme songs. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and then George comes along <laughs> and, uh, and completely blows that, um, blows that <laughs> out of the water with something that's, you know, educational and, and wonderful. And there's so much scope for it. So do you get a lot of people coming to, to you, to Raspberry Pi, with things they've done? What can Raspberry Pi offer to... Well, we're a uh, not-for-profit charity, which Mm -hmm. I definitely think is something that not everyone's aware of, uh, but we are an educational charity. So although we do get a lot of emails saying, please, can you send my classroom 50 Raspberry Pis, it's something that we're not really able to do. But what we are able to do is through our wide, wide community is offer support. And I think that's something that when George mentioned other options instead of the Raspberry Pi that exist out there, um, they're wonderful. You know, people use them in many projects, but what makes us slightly different is our amazing community of makers, educators, uh, ranging in all ages and abilities across mm. the world. So when we have people come to us and maybe they've got an idea for a project or maybe they're making something and they need funding, we do have that ability to put it on Twitter, yeah. maybe write a blog post, put the, point them in the direction of someone that has done something similar and that's where you see these ideas grow so if any of our listeners are inspired yeah. to <laughs> drop me an email come up with a cool museum project <laughs> drop you an email right yes, <laughs> put that in the show notes yes, as that's well. fine. Um, george have you have you had any kind of contact with other people who are doing museum based projects using raspberry Pis? 
Yes, yeah. The sorts of projects that are starting to happen are kind of pretty straightforward museum interactives, you know, where it might sort of, a Raspberry Pi might be sort of installed in a corner to drive a screen that just shows you a slideshow, that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, that's relatively easy to hook up as a um, enthusiastic computer lover. <laughs> so, you know, it's not too much of a jump for somebody who knows a little bit about computing to configure one of those. There's probably a ton of experimentation going on, but it's um, just a matter of finding it out, you know. So how much were museums involved in um, the kind of making and making of your boxes, the selecting and so on? That varies, actually, because um, we, we made a demonstration box last year called Big Stuff from the British Museum. <laughs> and we were able to make that box because we did 3D scans of objects that were large and in public areas of the museum. So we didn't actually need to ask any permission to do that. Um, but since then, we've, we have worked directly with some museums and, in fact, done 3D digitization for them in order to make the box. Um, and that sort of – that kind of work's increasing, actually, which is really exciting. But, yeah, you're right. We sort of – ideally, we would want to partner with museums as often as we can so the contents of the box supports their own education and outreach kind of uh, plans and, and um, you know, schedules. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we can we can certainly do certainly work really closely with the museum. Or um, there's also a lot of open 3D models on the internet now. And the the planets box that Alex mentioned before that was just you know we we bought some um, wooden balls on the internet and were able to make <laughs> make a really fun box just using something pretty abstract. You also don't need to use 3D prints either. You can just use postcards that have an image of objects on them. And the interaction in that case is just the same. So. The 3D printing isn't core, but it's it certainly makes a difference if you can. I mean, we think it certainly makes a difference if you can actually handle um, and just experience the the 3Dness of it. Do you think that the experience people are getting of interacting with replica objects is that different from actually being in contact with the real thing? Well, let me start by saying I think it depends a fair bit on what the object is. There's really nothing like being able to visit the British Museum and seeing Hoahaka and Anaya, you know. I definitely respect the desirability of seeing the, the original object. Um, but in our um, research with kids, they don't care. They don't, you know, necessarily uh, recognise the power or the aura of the original object, you know, yet. Maybe they will. So, you know, in that case... I think one of the hopes that we have for Museum in a Box is that it might encourage a visit to see the actual thing or in the context of, you know, you send out a, a box that is sort of helping with a pre-visit briefing, if you like, for the kids so they get to see replicas and then maybe when they go to the museum they can find the original. But we've also heard a lot in our research that museums don't get visited as much as museums think they do. <laughs> Um, and a lot of schools aren't just aren't in the position either by locality or, or finances to visit the physical place. And if you're talking about a museum like the – I don't like using the British Museum as an example because it is so exceptional, but generally speaking, most museums only have, you know, what, 5% of their collection on display or maybe 10. So there's all these other things that just can't be experienced even if you were in the place. So, you know, maybe museum in a box, if they can sort of, if we can increase that percentage of access to 20 or 50 or even 100% of the collection, that's a good thing too. 
but yeah, I don't know. You get to hold something amazing. That's that's just great as long as you know that the thing is amazing. Yeah, and so you, it's not necessarily replacing the experience of of no, no, not at all. And, and and interacting with these things in person. No, yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's very deliberately a simulacrum. You know, it's not it's not trying to be a perfect replica. But I think actually, as three D printing gets more sophisticated, which it is every day, the quality of the replica will get better and better. Like even just the printing materials makes a difference. So you can either print in this stuff that's called um, SLA, which is just sort of plasticky resin, or you can print in sort of a stone-like material or as a gypsum-based material. And just the sort of heft of two 3D prints in those two different materials is really interesting. Like one of the favourite prints I've got here in the office is um, the Venus of Willendorf, um, and she's printed in that kind of gypsum material and at actual size or near close to it, and she's just beautiful to hold. You know, but if you look at her in the museum where she lives, she's sort of in a glass case with a pole stuck up her bum. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you just you can't. You, you, nobody touches her. You know, yeah. so it's just you know what I mean. Yeah, and and you, I, I think the cool thing about these objects is that you can boop them on the uh, brain, and if you tried that in a real museum, then the conservators would come and jump on you pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, and I totally get the preservation angle here. It, you know, some things you just can't touch. Otherwise, they will be destroyed, or you certainly can't let 20 grubby fingers on them, you know, just after the, they've been eating peanut butter sandwiches, <laughs> obviously. But uh, again, I, I just love the idea that you have a thousand copies of something out in the world, and it's not, it's not intending to take away from that original, but it's just intending to show it to more people, you know? Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the things I like most about it is the postcards are great, but you, you were talking about how this is different from just a sort of... Um, looking at stuff on the internet, for example, or looking at a, a display screen that's in a museum, that you've got the actual experience yeah. of, of handling these things. And yeah. I'm kind of interested in this um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that one of my children is visually impaired. And so mm. museums, are much as it pains me to say this as a museum professional, but museums are kind of hostile places in many ways. Um, for him because yeah. he's he's not going to get a lot out of looking at stuff that's behind glass but then if you can give someone a a model of the things that they're learning about and so on then they'll learn so much more um through that kind of yeah. tactile learning we had when we were in somerset house even those couple of years ago we had some folks from an organization called vocalize come and visit oh yeah um you know these guys they they write yeah. um amazing audio uh descriptions for experiences in cultural spaces, so not just describing objects, but you know what it's like to walk into the theatre, or you know, you know the actual experience of being in the place as well. Um, but anyway, a, a few of those folks came to have a look at what we were up to, and it was really interesting just observing. Actually, in one case, a completely blind person just operating with these objects. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's stunning how quickly they can find uh, facial features, for example, um, even in quite a small three D model. But it was really interesting to get their feedback on the sort of materiality of the 3D prints and, the you know, the, the questions that remained even as they could touch the things were, well, how big is it really and what's it made of? You know, the, so the 3D printing sort of encodes the information about the form of the thing but not the size or the, you know, what it's what it actually feels like. Yeah. Um, and that sort of that led to a little design idea actually about, in any box, we could also include an object that's designed to help scale the rest of the, the things in the box. Oh, wow. uh, and also maybe we could include a little sample of the actual material that something was made of, you know, yeah. like a, a little cube of granite or um, a piece of marble. 
so yeah, we're we're definitely interested in the accessibility angle of this, um, and even just the fact that it plays you audio instead of having you having to read something. Um, we did a one of our recent projects was about um, doing some outreach for the Camden Council here in London, and they bizarrely they have a, a pretty good art collection about Camden or artists who've lived in Camden. So we made a box that had um, some tactile postcards and also some 3D prints of some works in their collection. And part of our work was to do um, some outreach ourselves in libraries and hospitals here in London. And we were absolutely thrilled when a little girl in Great Ormond Street Hospital who's nonverbal, she she just lit up when she could make these objects make sound, Mm. you know, and she just – I, like the agency that it gave her was just sort of stunning, you know, and she just had the biggest smile on her face and she was absolutely loving it, you know. So that just we would never have anticipated that, you know, and just to, to see it was really great. I'm also interested in this because I'm a museum conservator and um, yeah. perhaps unfairly conservators are often seen as the people who say no to everything <laughs> and to all the kind of cool education things that go on and we're the kind of people who want to keep all objects locked up in a dark room where nobody can touch them and damage them and so on so it's kind of it it sounds like it might be quite a good way of getting access to objects without any of the kind of physical damage that happens um and -hmm. i just wondered george if, if you'd had any involvement with the conservators in the institutions you'd or whether that's something you might like to do yeah, uh, let me let me just chat about um, the first point you made. Um, but yeah, no. In terms of conservation, um, we would it, there's a there's a group in Oxford who are doing some really interesting 3D printing work. They're called Think C 3D, and they're doing the kind of work that takes very old objects uh, that might be a little broken, and sort of operating in a 3D software environment and sort of you know, filling in the cracks, as it were, and then reprinting these objects um, as if they weren't broken, um, which is just a very interesting angle, I think. Um, And also, you know, when you go into a museum and there's an object off display being, you know, protected by the conservatives, Yes. (laughs) um, you know, often they have kind of a a crappy A4 piece of paper that says, oh, sorry, this is, you know, being looked after now. Yeah. Well, well, what if you could have a a 3D print there instead and, you know, clearly labelled as such, this is a, you know, this is a replica made of plastic of the thing, but it's here just so you can see it, you know. That's a a very simple use case, I think, that would be really good. um, but yeah, so there's a, a couple of angles there, the sort of reconstruction of broken things and just a presentation of a thing that's, you know, uh, off the floor as it were, and even sort of reconstruction of objects whose pieces have been separated is another use case we've experienced mm-hmm. where, you know, a head of a statue is in somewhere and a, the body of the statue is somewhere else. You can put those bits together, um, and then print the, the, um, you know, how it would have looked. Um, yeah, so I think there's tons of scope in there for um, showing how things might have looked before. And there's also we're, – we're starting to work with a, a couple of artists, the little studio called Pango Studios, who they're using kind of conventional artistic techniques on 3D prints to make them look like uh, they, they're they real. Like, for example um, – we did a project with the Jewish Museum, which was about remembrance, and one of the objects in the box was um, a sort of scaled-down 3D print of a memorial sculpture. 
And Sarah from Pango, she painted it to look like the, I think it was granite, I'm not certain, but, you know, I think it was. And there was sort of gold lettering and, you know, and the the result was so much nicer than just a sort of white plastic print. You, you know, the it it also encoded sort of information because it had had that artistic treatment, you know. So, yeah, I think there's tons of stuff you could do in terms of um, certainly presenting fragile stuff. Um, and that's, I guess that's one of the sort of underlying themes of, of this idea is, you know, lots of museums all over the place and libraries and archives are digitizing as much as they can all the time. But then those digitized materials often just end up sitting on some hard drive somewhere or are displayed really annoyingly in a tiny thumbnail on a website somewhere, you know. Um, so hopefully Museum in a Box is actually a vehicle to make use of these digitized materials and just expose them to people in a, in a much more direct way. So are you interested in um, people who have got these kind of digitized materials? Uh, I mean, would you, would you welcome approaches from them? Yes, please. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I was chatting to a friend the other day who was at university. I think he's studying history, and he got given a bunch of source documents around the subject of a slave ship. So the, all his classmates got given the same materials, and the assignment was to construct a narrative about what it was like to actually be on the slave ship from all these kind of letters and receipts, and I, I don't know if they're objects or not. But um, and he was telling me that each of the students made up a totally different vision of what the slave ship was like. And I really like that as a, like imagine if you got a museum in a box that didn't have content, it wasn't trying to tell you something, but it was a, an interesting enough sort of combination of things that it just prompted questions really easily. We, we'd love to make a box like that too, where it's not being trying to be declarative or, or authoritative, you know, but it's much more about well, what do you think the connections are between all these things? And that's that's the good thing about the Raspberry Pi as well, is that you've got that ability to tag it, to place the tag on more than once. Mm-hmm. So you could have the first time it goes on there, it could it could maybe ask a question that could start conversation with the students and then you could press it on again and it will answer the question. And then you've got the idea of kind of discussion and seeing how close they were. One, one other project that I would bring up, just talking about the... Uh, Conservation was there's uh, one that George showed me when I was there using the Augment app with the museum mm. fire. Why don't you Why don't you tell? Well, the story? you you know I, I can show it. I've got <laughs> I've got the app on my phone, so I'm going to get it working. But you could probably explain it a lot better than I could. <laughs> yeah, um, it was um, Tom did a bit of 3D digitization for. Um, let me see. I think it was a Southwark Museum here in London. Now, this is a museum who doesn't actually have a public premises uh, at the moment, so all their all their stuff's sort of held in storage in this kind of weird little warehouse in in Suffolk. <laughs> um, but he helped uh, do some digitization for them. One of one of the things that he did was I don't know, it's maybe about the size of a basketball, just a little bit bigger, and it was a a little sculpture of a giraffe that was kind of sitting down, kind of gently, but it was broken. <laughs> um, so the we use this app that Alex mentioned called Augment, which is just a, an augmented reality thingy. And what you do with Augment is you, you sort of look through an iPad or a phone to a reference image. And then that upon that reference image, you can project a 3D model or other, you know, animations even. So what this would do, you'd have a postcard that was the broken giraffe. And then you look at it through Augment and the giraffe is miraculously restored. Mm-hmm. You know, you could see um, very easily and quickly how it would have looked if it weren't broken. 
Yeah. We loved actually that you could do that in Magpie, Alex. We have got we've got the printed Magpie yeah, I think, in front of but me. But it's it's a kind of crappy folded up photocopy. Oh, print no, out it's... of. Oh, here we go. There we go. Oh wow. <laughs> Oh my God, sorry, I'm going to have to take a picture of this because this is absolutely amazing. Yeah, go for it. So you can look all around it and rotate it and so on. Mm-hmm. Augmented reality giraffe sitting on top of a printout <laughs> from the magazine. Yeah. Cool, I have just videoed that. Because <laughs> that is super cool. exciting. <laughs> and like we will try and find a way to get that online for people to see. <laughs> Alex, I was when Jenny and Chloe and I were talking about kind of potential for using raspberry mm. pies in in museums generally, but more specifically conservation things. I think there was a feeling that people find this quite daunting. This idea that you need to be some kind of computer expert to even start yeah. with this. Would you say that's true? No, <laughs> I thought not. <laughs> um, I yeah, I I definitely am not, and I somehow put together small projects at my desk um, again it is partly that idea of community I mm-hmm. do have people in the office where if I'm trying to make something work I just kind of whine at them until they come and help me to be fair you work in the Raspberry Pi yeah. office so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally in between like the guys who write the educational resources and the engineers that's where I sit uh, but for those of yeah, us who are for those of you that don't um it's there's so many resources out there to help you learn and it's really interesting how it's hard to find the word really but we we run a one of the many things that we run is something called pike academy mm-hmm. and pike academy is a two-day event where we um educate educators in how to bring digital making and raspberry pi though not necessarily raspberry pi they can use other things into the classroom so obviously we've got the recent changes in the curriculum in the uk and a whole new curriculum over in the us and we've just started Pi Academy over there as well. When you see a grown man cry because he's made an LED blink, um, it, it, it changes everything. And uh, there is probably documented proof out there of this, I'm sure. So once you get the basics, it's the same with many things. Once you've learned how to make a button work, which is a few lines of code, and you've learned how to make an LED light up, and you've learned again, a few lines of code, and suddenly, well, you go, well, I know how to make the light light, I know how to make the button work, so how about if I use the button to turn the light on and off? Mm-hmm. And it's it's just that idea of ingredients. You're slowly learning all of these different ingredients to make something wonderful. It's it's not as hard as, as you would think, and as George said, you know, there's lots of um, museums and events out there that are using Raspberry Pis just to play back video, which is relatively easy and then you even through that you'll go okay well I know how to make it play video but wouldn't it be nice if it only plays the video if you press a button well I've learned how to make a button so again it's just that idea um it's very simple something like the magpie magazine that we were just talking about um and our essentials guide that uh, magpie produces are all free downloads Mm. so the day that magpie magazine is made available in stores it's also free for you to download and it's that idea of everything that we produce is free. Obviously, we'd love you to go and buy the Magpie because that money goes back into paying the Magpie staff and they like being paid. But um, the idea that everything is free instantly opens up all the possibilities. For instance, I had someone over the other week, a YouTuber um, called Stephanie, and we were looking at um, one of our resources, which is how to make a whoopee cushion. <laughs> with two paper plates working as a button and when you press them together tin foil touches and that connection makes a fart noise happen oh wow <laughs> yeah. so, I love that. 
Now that is essentially taking the idea of what we just said of making a button yeah. and making something play. So then we looked at that resource and we went, well, let's turn it on its head. Mm-hmm. And instead we made something that it was a, a coaster with a mug on it. And when you lift the mug, it made a noise. So it was reversing that, that process. And it was simply a case of changing one line of code. Yeah. So it's so, so easy to get into it. You know, we have everyone from every age coming to us. Um, maybe they used to code in their youth and now they're coming back to it. Maybe they're a slightly older generation and they're bringing their kids and grandkids into it. Yeah. It's so, there's so much there. Um, and something like Pi Academy, if you go to FutureLearn, you can do online free training as well, which is the same, you know, making LEDs blink and everything else. It's all free for you to do online um, and everything's on the website. Fantastic. I guess the main point I'd, I'd like to reiterate is that we're, we're looking for museum partners to work with really closely because we're still basic, we're still trying to prove the concept um, and that means making sure we have uh, a really sound educational strategy as well as cool a cool thing to play with. So the more exposure we can have with museum professionals who are um, teaching people stuff, the better. And, you know, it's just good for us to make as many boxes as we can at the moment. So, yeah, if there are people listening to this who have a set of digitised materials that are just sitting on a hard drive, you know, give us a call. (laughs) Well, Alex Bate and George Oates, thank you very much for talking to The C Word today. No problem at all. You're welcome. And if you've got any comments, questions or corrections, please write in and tell us. You can tweet us, email us, whatever you'd like. Uh, We love hearing from you. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word, and you'll be listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Mathiasen. Check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at thecwordpodcast, or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by DD Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. This has been a Wooden Dice production.